Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, editor of GP Online, and I'm joined today by our news editor, Nick Bostock, and our senior reporter, Luke Haynes. This week, we're talking about a new inquiry into the future of general practice launched by the House of Commons Health and Social Care Committee. We'll also look at the decision to introduce mandatory COVID-19 vaccination for all NHS staff in England. And we'll be discussing the election of a new chair for the BMA's GP committee in England and looking ahead to next week's conference of English LMCs. Later in the podcast, I'll be speaking to Dr Veronica Grant, a GP in Derbyshire and the RCGP's clinical champion for veterans' health, about the healthcare needs of veterans and steps practices can take to better support military families. And we have a bit of good news about GP trainees. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. First up, the House of Commons Select Committee has announced an inquiry into the future of general practice. Nick, what do we know about this and what's the significance of it? Yeah, so as you say, the uh, Select Committee's uh, launched this inquiry into the future of general practice. It's probably important to be clear that this isn't a government review. It won't directly shape government policy, but this is an influential committee of, G- of MPs chaired by a former health and social care secretary in Jeremy Hunt, and its findings will put pressure on ministers and will be widely reported in the national media. It's significant because we now have the last health secretary but one spelling out publicly how grave the situation facing general practice is at the moment. He, he described general practice as the beating heart of the NHS, but said that it's in crisis and described its workforce as utterly exhausted and demoralised. So after years of GP leaders saying general practice is in crisis, we now have recognition of that from senior politicians. Clearly, this inquiry is being launched very much in the shadow of massive criticism of general practice over face-to-face access. And it will look at barriers to access to general practice and consider what the impact is when patients can't access a GP via their preferred method. But importantly, it'll also consider whether the controversial access plan and support package announced in October offers any real solutions. And it will consider things like challenges facing the profession over the coming years, regional variation in services, how to reduce bureaucracy and burnout factors, such as whether the model of general practice needs to change and whether partnerships are sustainable and primary care networks are uh, are helping. It'll also give GP leaders another opportunity to make the case to leading politicians about the pressures facing general practice and how to address them. There was another bit of news from Parliament this week that could put more pressure on the government around transparency for workforce planning, wasn't there as well? That's right. We know um, workload is at an unprecedented level in general practice. And Health and Social Care Secretary Sajid Javid admitted recently to the same Health Select Committee that we've just been talking about that the uh, the government was not on track to meet its manifesto commitment to deliver an extra 6,000 full-time equivalent GPs by 2024. And we heard this week that uh, dozens of health organisations, including the BMA, the Royal College of Physicians, as well as think tanks and so on, have backed an amendment to the Health and Care Bill put forward by Jeremy Hunt. And this amendment would require the government to report every two years on workforce planning in the NHS. And it would basically force the government to clarify not only what it's doing to train people to work in health and social care, but specifically whether it's training and retaining enough people to meet current demands and future demands. And if that goes through, it might mean whatever comes out of the inquiry we've just been talking about could have slightly bigger teeth. It's worth mentioning, too, that Jeremy Hunt, 
who's now calling out the GP crisis and pushing for transparency on workforce planning is the same Jeremy Hunt who has admitted that when he was health secretary, he didn't do enough to prioritise building the NHS workforce and whose 2015 promise of 5,000 extra GPs went up in smoke. Hopefully, this inquiry and legislation, if it goes through, can be a step towards putting that right. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, that Jeremy Hunt's leading on the charge on this, given his relationship with the medical profession in the past. So moving on, last week, the government announced that it would introduce mandatory COVID-19 vaccination for all NHS staff in England from the 1st of April next year. The decision came as new regulations that require anyone working in a care home, including GPs and other members of the practice team entering care homes, to be fully vaccinated against COVID came into force on the 12th of November. So, Luke, can you explain what the new rules that will apply to NHS staff are and and who will be affected by it? Yeah, so as you mentioned, by April 1st next year, all frontline NHS staff must be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 unless they're exempt. So under the regulations, providers of CQC-regulated activity, including GP practices, will only be allowed to employ staff in roles uh, involving patient interaction if they are double jabbed. Um, I think it's important to highlight here that the regulation not only covers frontline staff but also non-clinical workers um, if they are if they're directly involved in patient care uh, because they have sort of face-to-face contact with them so this means that the mandate will affect GP reception teams for example and other general practice staff who might not be sort of physically treating patients um, which a lot of people maybe didn't expect um, before the the sort of the detail around the mandate was was published yeah and why is the government waiting till April to introduce these rules why not bring them in now? Primarily, the government's waiting um, just to ensure that NHS workers have had enough time to get their jabs, um, as obviously it takes uh, a few months to to get that full protection. Um, But it's probably also true to say that the government is waiting rather than implementing the measures immediately um, because it's aware of the significant disruption it could cause, um, specifically to the workforce um, in terms of having to get people jabbed. And obviously, in the run-up to what's been labelled as the toughest winter in living history uh, for the NHS, introducing this mandate now would probably plunge health and social care services into complete crisis um, if the mandate was was sort of carried out immediately, um, as it would leave both sectors massively short of, of workers, if we're to believe estimates. Yeah, I mean, obviously, clearly the main concern from everyone, including unions, is how it's um, ultimately going to impact on workforce numbers, given that we're in the midst of a pretty dire staffing crisis. What do we know about how many people in the NHS have not been vaccinated and how do we think this kind of translates and will affect the GP workforce going forwards? Yeah, so from official government um, estimates, it said that a total of 73,000 NHS staff may not get um, fully vaccinated despite the mandate and therefore will be prevented from carrying out face-to-face work or could be forced to leave the NHS altogether. Now, we know that in general practice, vaccine uptake among GPs specifically has been quite high. But the issue here is that we don't know the appetite of the full sort of general practice workforce. Um, So, for example, reception teams and practice managers. But using their government workforce figures uh, on the whole of the general workforce practice, so not just GPs, we've estimated that general practice could lose as many as 9,000 staff due to the mandate. 
So this works out at around 1.3 members of staff per practice in England. So as you can tell, we're talking about something that's likely to have quite a real impact on, on the workforce, on the general practice workforce. And as well as a huge impact to the workforce, the government's impact assessment has warned that it could cost the NHS an awful lot of money to replace these staff. Um, it's estimated around 185 million um, for NHS staff. Obviously, it could lead to a decrease in productivity, the uh, impact assessment warns, just because of the loss of experienced workers and having to retrain and integrate the lost staff. Do we know whether the rules around care home vaccination, did that actually lead to an increase in the number of people taking up the jab? Yeah, yeah. so as you mentioned, th- this requirement for uh, NHS staff in patient-facing roles to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 is the, the second phase. And it, the, um, it, it's, you know, it's already mandatory for staff coming into contact with people in care homes. Uh, and as Luke said, there are some very real fears that mandatory jabs will hit the workforce because a proportion of people remain unwilling to be vaccinated. Um, But um, the uh, evidence suggests that numbers will come down as the deadline for being vaccinated nears. Um, The government said that unvaccinated care home staff dropped from something like 80,000 to 30,000, you know, after the announcement of the the, the vaccine mandate in, in that sector. Thanks, both of you, for that. Some breaking news that's happened while we've been recording this week's episode is the BMA's announcement that Dr Farah Jamil has been elected chair of the Association's GP Committee for England. She becomes the first woman to take on this role. Dr Jamil is a sessional GP in Camden, North London and chair of Camden Mel MC. She's served on the GP committee's executive team since 2017 and been a member of the committee since 2014. She takes over from Dr Richard Vautry at a really crucial time for the profession and ahead of next week's LMC conference in England, which takes place on Thursday and Friday. Arguably, relations between GPs in England and the government and GPs in NHS England have rarely, if ever, been worse. General practice is also facing a workforce and workload crisis, both of which show no signs of being resolved anytime soon. Looking ahead to next week, the conference is a chance for LMCs to debate some of these key issues. The votes effectively direct the BMA's GP committee on what LMCs want it to focus on in the coming year, including in negotiations with NHS England. Much of what is up for the discussion will reflect the key issues that Dr Jamil is going to have to deal with in her new role as GPC chair. So Nick and Luke, I was wondering if you could highlight any of the motions that you in particular think will be of real interest this year. So these conferences generally rattle through issues fairly quickly, debate by debate. But in recent years, they've made room for a single longer debate on a key issue. And the chosen theme this this time is GP well-being. It's obviously a very broad topic. And the debate will cover everything from the impact of rising levels of abuse over face-to-face access in general practice, attacks on general practice in the media and from politicians, the impact of intense workload and understaffing and pressure triggered by the pandemic. But the, the part GPs will actually vote on, I think, spells out in quite stark terms how general practice is being affected by some of these factors. So GPs will warn that patient safety is being undermined directly by abuse of general practice staff as well as by underfunding and by the failure of NHS England and politicians to stand up for and support the profession. And the the, the committee that put the debate together has said it was overwhelmed by the number of motions submitted for, for this debate and also by, open quotes, the deep hurt and damage to the profession that they articulated. Um, and, and I think we're likely to hear some powerful testimony as part of this uh, about what it's been like to be a GP over the past couple of years. The, the other one that stood out for me is a motion arguing that there's been a loss of connection between grassroots GPs and their elected representatives on the BMA's GP committee. 
this comes at an absolutely crucial time in the midst of a GP crisis and with potential industrial action on the cards. And it suggests that the new BMA GP committee chair who will be in post by the time this conference kicks off is going to have a huge job on their hands, not just negotiating with the government, but patching up the bond between the profession and its leaders. And what about you, Luke? Which one did you um, notice? So I think one motion to keep an eye out for is motion 16, which is about PCNs and the argument that the model has been missold to the profession. Um, That's a quote. And quote is a Trojan horse. So in the motion, GPs express their concern about a couple of things, primarily the threat um, of PCNs to the independent contractor model and the amount of workload the scheme is creating for practices and particularly GPs running, um, running PCNs. Those raising the motion want GPC England to refuse to negotiate further around the PCN DES, so effectively they just want to see out the end of the contract in 2023. And they also want current PCN funding to be moved into the core contract and for it to be made easier for practices to pull out of the DES currently. This motion isn't much of a surprise to me, given that multiple GPs I've spoken to have said that the workload associated with the DES, especially the recruitment side of things through the ARRS, has been and continues to be quite significant. So staff recruited through the the R's uh, in some cases are taking away from clinical time, which is key at the moment, but particularly at the moment. um, And recruitment issues also mean that general practice is losing out on tens of millions of pounds in funding, which we've reported on before and that's because um, people either can't identify people to to hire or they just don't exist. Um, So that's why we've seen an argument to move the funding into core to ensure uh, the funding isn't totally lost to general practice and some of the red tape around uh, accessing it hopefully removed. Um, But saying all of this, it would be wrong to say that the DES and the um, ARRS scheme isn't working completely because in many cases the workforce mix that's coming into general practice is benefiting practices and I've heard from many people who say that the staff they've recruited now they just couldn't do do without them so they are having a, a positive effect in some places. Um, I think it would be fair to say that the motion probably shows the tension um, within the profession at the minute in terms of there being sort of split on whether people are thinking PCNs are a good or bad idea and whether they want to go forward with them in the future. Uh, One of the other motions I also spotted was there's there's also one calling for a pretty major overhaul of the GP contracts in England. I mean, these things tend to come up at the LMC's conference from time to time, in particular, you know, objections to the current model of a fixed fee per patient per year, which many argue doesn't really reflect the work practices do or adequately cover the costs involved. So this year, there's a motion arguing that this way of paying practice is outdated. It's calling on the BMA to negotiate a fee-for-service contract, including item-of-service fees for core work, which is how practices were used to be paid before 2004. Another point on the motion calls for allowing practices to provide more private services if they're not commissioned locally by the NHS. I mean, motions about private work don't tend to pass, but some of them have actually come pretty close in previous years. Obviously, as we talked about a lot today, there's a lot of dissatisfaction in the profession at the minute, in particular around workload. And I also think it's fair to say that a lot of GPs feel that what they do isn't properly understood or valued, you know, especially by politicians. So we could find, I think, that delegates may be prepared to vote for more radical options around the contract than they were perhaps would have done in previous years. You know, I think there, there is a bit of an appetite out there for some sort of reform of the GP contract, but I, it really remains to be seen how far LMCs want to push that and whether there is a majority view that a massive overhaul is required. And I think, you know, this motion could be a bit of a bellwether for whether that's on the cards in future.
I'm joined now by Dr. Veronica Grant, who's a GP in Derbyshire and the RCGP Clinical Champion for Veterans Health. We're going to talk a bit about veterans health and healthcare for military families. So I was wondering if, first of all, you could explain a bit about how you became particularly interested in, in this side of healthcare. Thank you, Emma. Yes, um, previously I worked as a civilian medical practitioner for Defence Medical Services, providing um, care for serving personnel and their families. I also have personal insight as a military spouse uh, through my husband, who was serving as an officer in the army and he's now a veteran. We're talking about veterans' health. So what sort of health needs uh, do former members of the armed forces have that GPs and other practice staff should be aware of? So there are some physical and mental health conditions which may be related to military service or or maybe more common amongst veterans. Uh, So physical health problems, including musculoskeletal problems and and common conditions such as osteoarthritis or hearing problems, which may have been accelerated by military service. Um, With regard to mental health problems, um, this is is very topical at the moment, given the recent events in Afghanistan. um, There's a report saying that there's been a a doubling in the number of calls to uh, combat stress um, helplines for mental health problems um, in recent times and also remembrance uh, commemorations as well. So common mental health conditions such as adjustment disorder, anxiety and depression are are common amongst veterans. Uh, In addition to PTSD um, is more common in veterans than those who haven't served. It's important to note as well that alcohol problems are more common as are substance misuse. And also a recent study showed that gambling problems and also a, a bigger issue amongst veterans um, is significantly more common amongst veterans and, and then those who have not served. Um, veterans are regarded as a potentially vulnerable patient group with 52% having long-term illness or disability, uh, which is higher than that of the general population, which is quoted at 35%. Why did the RCGP feel it was important to have a, a champion for improvements in healthcare for this particular group? So studies over the last few years have shown that um, a large number of GPs are not aware of which of their patients are veterans or what to do about that information um, using the correct codes um, in, the, in the records, unaware of, of veteran-specific services to signpost to, and, and also recognising some of the health problems that are more specifically related to, to veterans. There's also part of the Armed Forces Covenant um, promised by the nation that those serving or who have served in their families shouldn't be disadvantaged by their military service. Um, Improving care for veterans is part of the NHS long-term plan to ensure that all GPs in England are equipped to best serve our veterans and their families in conjunction with the RCGP with a plan to roll out the Veteran Accreditation Scheme, which is an easy um, programme to sign up to and better equipped practices to to best serve the uh, military veterans. You mentioned there the the accreditation um, programme that the RCGP has. Um, Can you explain a bit about what that is and how it works and why you think it's a good idea for practices to sign up to it? It's highly recommended by practices that are already accredited. Um, It's a simple, free and online process whereby practices provide evidence that they're supportive of veterans' healthcare. It's quick and easy and requires no extra time commitment for practices. Practices are required to nominate a clinical lead, um, which can be a GP, but might be another member of the primary healthcare team. So there's many examples now of practice managers, nurses, paramedics, physicians, associates um, who have taken on the practice lead. Um, So new patients are to be asked, have you ever served in the armed forces as part of the registration questionnaire and then appropriately coded in their notes as a military veteran. Once practices are accredited, um, they're provided with an information pack with um, details of referral pathways, top tips for GPs, newsletters and training opportunities. So 
far we have uh, 1,076 practices accredited, which accounts for about 15% of practices in England. Um, and a, a recent evaluation project by the University of Chester, Westminster Centre for Research and Veterans, showed that 99% of those accredited practices would recommend the programme. Um, so it, it has a high level of satisfaction for those already signed up. One of the things it asks to become accredited is that practices increase awareness of the health needs of veterans amongst clinical and administrative staff. I mean, how do you recommend practices do that? What's the best way to do that? Often members of staff may have military connections, um, and I think that's quite an important thing. Um, It's quite an important team building exercise in many ways um, that um, the staff feel that they they're supportive of veterans um, and military families um, cascading the information to the practice team so um, it's really important to have the involvement of the front of house reception staff promoting the program in the waiting rooms through posters uh, screen savers um, on social media and websites um, and, and also cascading that, that information and training to the practice team uh, with relevant updates which are provided through the RCGP contacts. I also wanted to ask you while I have you here about um, families of military personnel. Um, are there any issues that's useful for GPs and other healthcare staff to be aware of when it comes to patients on their list that are military families? Um, definitely. Um, there is, it's important to say, I think there's a huge diversity amongst military families, um, but th- there are many things um, that, that are in common. So they, they may be exper- exposed to long periods of separation from the, the serving um, person through deployments or training exercises. Um, there may be some service-specific um, differences. So in the Navy, um, a serving person may spend six months away at sea and then six months back on land, which can be really disruptive to the family. Um, and in the Army, they may have more frequent relocations for the family. Um, but there are some excellent welfare and support um, provided, particularly through the relevant families federations uh, as well. And also, if, if um, a military family was to move into the practice area, I think it's important to know that that's the case that they are a military family but also if they are um, on a waiting list for anything so it's important that GPs and primary healthcare teams advocate to maintain the relative position on a waiting list um, which they are entitled to. That's part of the armed forces covenant which you mentioned earlier isn't it can you explain what that is and what it means for veterans and military families and also kind of what's important for GPs and their teams to know about it? Yes, sure. So the Armed Forces Covenant is a promise by the nation that in return for the service that um, military personnel, veterans and their families will be treated with fairness and respect. Um, It it was initially a moral obligation, which has now been enshrined in law for the last 10 years. Um, So this has sort of parallels and translates into primary care for veterans in understanding the veteran community and their potential health problems. Um, having an awareness of how to signpost or refer to to appropriate veteran-specific services um, and also to request priority treatment for uh, veterans when uh, health problems are partially or wholly attributable to military service. Um, And again, as we touched on for for military families, it's having that awareness and understanding of the additional pressure faced by military families um, and also uh, maintaining that relative position on the waiting list where appropriate. So what are some of the key challenges that servicemen and women face as they leave the armed forces? And is there any sort of particular healthcare issues that GPs is worth them being aware of? And again, is there any sort of difference in the challenges they might face depending on which service they were a member of? 
Sure. So um, I think there's, there's a quote taken from a, a study by King's College London, which was published in January this year, leaving the military introduces a rupture across all levels, which I think is really apt um, because serving the military is a way of life it's it's all encompassing um and um you know really leaving the military and that transition into civilian life can be really challenging um on every level from leaving a job with a clear rank and career structure to their social life accommodation even bills friendship camaraderie banter all of these things um, can be lost on on leaving the, the military um and it's often where where do they fit in 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 the world in, of civilian life um so not for all but for some veterans they do find it really challenging and that has an impact on the individual and their family um there's lots of things to sort out logistically from housing schooling spousal employment um and, and stress on relationships potentially too um with regard to um the different services um i think there's probably a lot in common with with leaving the the military whether it's the Navy, Army or Air Force, it is that um, potential loss of identity and, and feeling of where they fit in in society um, to a large extent. And I think a NHS GP practice might feel like an alien environment. Um, so it's important that we um, maybe take that on board and are aware of that and go go the extra mile. So, you know, having things like in the waiting room that we are a veteran accredited uh, practice, um, it often helps to remove that barrier to some extent um, and if um, again if, if veterans feel that they're understood they're much more likely to um, address health problems as well. Part of being a veteran uh, accredited practice isn't it you, you should you need to ask people whether they are veterans whether they have been when they registered with the practice so if someone did that um, would it be a good idea for a GP to have a, an appointment with them and or is it more just knowing about it when they actually come in for an appointment that's the most important thing I think it's knowing about that that they are a veteran when they come in for an appointment rather than with again it's a diverse group and I think that's really important to say um, some veterans don't need that additional support um, it is the minority that do have um, those unique um, uh, problems that are related to their service um, and then being able to know what to do with that information signposting to the relevant organization so Op Courage for Mental Health um, is an excellent organization which is veteran specific um, and can make such a difference to those who are struggling um, and as I say in particularly in light of the recent events in Afghanistan which is really topical at the moment. In terms of that you know you've mentioned that a couple of times is the reason that causing issues is it people who have actually been there and coming back or is it is it actually sort of triggering for other people who were there in the in the past and may have been in may, may have left the army I think I think you're you're right by saying that Emma I think it's probably a combination of both certainly for those who've served in Afghanistan um, and and many of those from from previous times again it might open up sort of old wounds um, that have never really been addressed how common is PTSD amongst veterans? The statistics do vary to some extent. So um, the recent research shows that um, about 8% of veterans um, who've served in Afghanistan in recent conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq um, have PTSD. Um, that rises to approximately 17% of those who've served in frontline combat roles in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but again, it's difficult because there is often a delay in coming forward with these problems and some may go unreported. Um, so patients may present in an undifferentiated way. Um, sometimes, again, with alcohol abuse as a maladaptive coping strategy. Um, so the, it may not 
the the statistics may not be the absolute reality of the situation. So if GPs have come across people with some of these issues, how does that work? Do they then, if they're veterans, they're no longer serving, do they then get referred into NHS um, mental health services or are there specialist services that help support former servicemen and women? There is an NHS service uh, called Op Courage, and this is an umbrella term. It's, it was launched in March this year, and it's an umbrella term for differing levels of uh, the service. So the the sort of transition intervention and liaison service, previously known as TILS, um, is where veterans are referred into directly. So they can self-refer, they can be referred by a charitable organisation or a relative or GPs we can refer them to and they're regional. Um, and further on from that initial assessment, which is usually within a couple of weeks, um, they may be signposted to other services. Um, the next rung of the ladder for those more complex mental health services, um, but again, through the same organisation, UpCourage, is the um, complex treatment service, um, which often has uh, trauma-based therapy, specialist services to try and help with those um, uh, those those individuals who have these more complex needs. Also within the umbrella term of UpCourage is the high intensity service, which is more recent and been rolled out across the country, um, which is more for veterans in crisis. Um, so th- these tailored services often um, have veterans working within the service and has that have that relation and that sort of building rapport with veterans so they feel better understood um even the terminology of courage um it's it's that that positive connotation of actually stepping forward and, and asking for help so as we've talked about the rcgp's got the accreditation program but what else is the college doing around supporting improved healthcare for veterans um so there's a, a large number of training resources on the rcgp website um and um, that, so that includes webinars, podcasts, um, there's um, up, updates in information and those who are accredited um, are provided with regular updates and newsletters about the updates in veterans healthcare. Um, the, going back to the RCGP accreditation programme, um, I realise there's lots of barriers in, in primary care at the moment and everyone is, is really stretched. However, I feel that the accreditation programme does really um, equip practices and primary healthcare teams to best serve this population. Um, it provides the referral pathways. It gives um, ideas as to how to improve care for this patient population who, who are classed as a potentially vulnerable uh, population. Thanks so much to Veronica for talking to me this week. You can find more information about all of the work the RCGP is doing around veterans' health, including the college's accreditation scheme and other education materials on supporting veterans and military families in the description for this episode. We've just got time for our regular good news, and this week is about record GP training numbers. I know we've discussed GP training numbers in this slot in the past, but it's always good news to see more doctors entering the profession. Luke, what are the latest figures? Yeah, so Health Education England announced this week that exactly 4,000 trainees have accepted places to begin specialist general practice training in 2021. So that's the first time that the figure has reached um, 4,000. So the intake is actually 5.5% larger than last year. And why is this good news? Well, it's another year where uh, Health Education England has hit the government targets of the number of GP trainees it wants to to see coming through and hopefully that goes some way towards boosting the overall workforce figure. That's it for this episode. Don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice at gponline.com 
which next week will include full coverage from the LMC's Conference for England. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Nick and Luke and to Dr Veronica Grant for speaking with me this week. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can get in touch on Twitter at GPOnlineNews or by using the hashtag TalkingGP. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate us, and you can subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. We're back in two weeks. See you then. Bye.